Support for this podcast comes from Davis Malm. If you're a buyer, seller, investor, or lender, Davis Malm attorneys know each deal has unique needs and requirements. Building client relationships one transaction at a time. More at davismalm.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M dot com. WBUR Podcasts. Boston. I'm Daryl C. Murphy, and you're listening to The Common. WBUR education reporter Max Larkin, welcome back to The Common. Thanks for having me back. So, Max, you have been covering the controversy over at Harvard, uh, where a group of donors are threatening to pull their support, or some already have pulled their support because they're not happy with how the university has responded to the attacks on Israeli civilians on October 7th by Hamas, and also how the university is dealing with anti-Semitism on campus. Now, Max, before we get started, I would like to get a definition for the listeners. As I understand it, anti-Semitism is an act of hatred towards a Jewish person for simply being Jewish. Do I understand that correctly? I think that is absolutely the classical definition. And I think the question is, how are we using that term and seeing that Mm -hmm. phenomenon right now? On the one hand, there's a history of anti-Semitism at Harvard in this country in the Western world. On the other hand, there is an ongoing debate within the Jewish world over whether any criticism of Israel is intrinsically anti-Semitic. But president mm-hmm. of the Anti-Defamation League says that it is. But many Jewish mm-hmm. students and Jewish campus leaders at Harvard say, of course, there are ways to advocate for Palestinian rights and maybe even Palestinian liberation without in any way engaging in a kind of blanket hatred toward Jewish people. And, and right. they really want to leave that space clear, keep that distinction especially now during complicated and painful times like this. Understood. So with that said, tell us about these donors and just how much money is on the line. Yeah. So it's been reported and we've confirmed as best we can that literally some of the nation's wealthiest people, um, most of them with alumni ties to Harvard, are upset. So that's you know, hedge fund billionaires, Bill Ackman, Seth Klarman in, in Boston, uh, Kenneth Griffin, who just uh, had the graduate school named after him. And I taken together, Daryl, we are talking about a great deal of money that they have given in the past. So tens, really hundreds of millions of dollars over the years. And that's just between Klarman and Griffin. Now, they're not asking for that money back. And I don't think either of those people have said affirmatively, you know, we'll never give money to Harvard again. But they have written open letters, made statements statements saying, we do not like how this university is being run, and we'd like to see a change. Now, at a lower level, Daryl, I spoke to a newly formed Jewish alumni organization, and they've got the same concerns. Basically, we're hearing from current Jewish students that they don't feel safe on that campus. They don't feel like the university has their back. And they said, these members are probably on balance smaller donors, but will only be giving at most $1 a year until we're satisfied that this has been addressed. So they are listening intently and watching closely and really nudging administration to take anti-Semitism seriously. Okay, now for the administration, 
let's talk about Harvard's president, Claudine Gay. Um, she's very new to the position. Yeah. How has she responded to this situation? She is new. She took over in just July. And I think it's worth noting that she's the second woman and the first person of color to lead this institution in almost 400 years of history. So there's an effort to position yourself in between yep. a lot of competing forces. So you have pro-Palestine students who feel unsafe and Jewish students who feel unsafe. Mm -hmm. You have donors who are alleging anti-Semitism. You also have a commitment to academic freedom, and you don't want there to be too serious, dire consequences for students who spoke up for Palestine during this time. She has released a number of statements kind of trying to triangulate that. Most recently, she has appeared before alumni groups and Harvard Hillel, which is a Jewish hub on campus, and said, but that does not mean that we don't condemn anti-Semitism in the strongest terms. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have to ask this. Claudine Gay is the first black person to lead Harvard University. Does her identity in that regard, her race, does that come into play in any of this? It is such a good question, right? <laughs> I think so much of the way both anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic bigotry, and, and racial bias work is on an implicit, deep-in-the-brain level, right? Mm -hmm. So I think at least two, maybe three of the last four or five presidents of Harvard have been Jewish. Um, mm -hmm. Larry Summers, who's still a professor at the school, really laid into gay, saying her message came late and that it didn't meet the moment. Nobody is saying this is because she's a woman of Haitian descent, but it may be that a Jewish president would have understood more intuitively how to speak to and about Israel in that moment of pain. Mm -hmm. I think we have seen it in a, in a total different part of my job, Daryl, with black and brown superintendents of schools. They sometimes do seem to get subject to more withering criticism, particularly and predominantly uh, white communities. And it may be that no one is being explicitly racially bigoted, but there may just be a slightly brighter spotlight. And I think it's worth noting, uh, Daryl, again, that she's new. Yeah. And so these donors and students may not know Claudine Gay the person as well as they otherwise might. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth. 
once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. And we're back with more from Max Larkin. So, Max, I understand you've spoken to a lot of students at Harvard during your reporting. And what did you hear from them? Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say, Daryl, that they aren't thrilled with the atmosphere on campus. Predominantly Jewish students do feel isolated. You know, I spoke to one who said she double locks her door every night. She didn't used to do that before. And that's real. And the university has to take that on board. These students are going to run upon anti-Semitic jokes, anti-Semitic tropes, and then pretty ferocious criticism of the state of Israel in as its bombing campaign continues. But, you know, I spoke to the a Harvard senior, Jeremy Ornstein, who says, you know, I love being a Jew. I love Israel. I have heard those jokes and they pain me. But I thought what he said next was really interesting. I feel like those kids who are scared have the right to be scared. But I, it's, it's so disappointing when we make ourselves so fragile that we can't have conversations in which we take accountability and which we close our eyes to the harms that we're doing because we're so afraid. Wow. Yeah. And so it gave me a little bit of hope in a painful moment that there are people on this campus and on every campus who are trying to do this the right way. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering just how much of an influence do donors like the ones you've named, how much influence do they have over Harvard? Formally, Daryl, they're not supposed to have any influence. So philanthropy is philanthropy. A gift is a gift. So you give it out of the goodness of your heart. But the reality is a little more complicated. You know, when schools hosted a particular right-wing or left-wing speaker gave an award to the wrong person, donors will threaten to withdraw their funds. It feels like a relationship, and it feels like, hey, I've helped you out in the past. Why aren't you doing what I want you to do? I spoke to this historian, Lila Corwin Berman. She studies philanthropy and says, donors throwing their weight around, threatening to withdraw funds, withdrawing future support, that's not uncommon. You know, there's really nothing particularly surprising to see that a donor is going to leave if they're unhappy with what the nonprofit is doing. The thing that we need to be really vigilant about is whether those moves are going to get the universities to change their essential missions. I think what Berman would say is if donors have like plausible, well-founded concerns about student safety and they have a relationship, then that's not the essential mission, changing mm -hmm. security arrangements or codes of conduct, et cetera. But you do get into a world, as we've seen at Brandeis University in just the past few days, where Students for Justice in Palestine, the leading student group in favor of Palestinian rights, is being banned on campus. And I think mm -hmm. there you start to get down a slippery slope of, first of all, are you curtailing students' free speech? And second of all, are you doing it because donors told you to? What does all of this tell us about the relationship between universities and colleges and their donors? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So like the vast majority of the time, particularly with large gifts, when you give money to a university, you're giving it for a specific 
purpose. You're giving it yeah. to start an athletic program, or you're giving it to start a particular seminar, fund a particular professor's chair. Influence is baked in to the process, right? But I think there's a new wrinkle at work. During the Vietnam War, first of all, there was much more public funding and much less private funding for universities. And they had a different attitude about taking public stands. So I spoke to Kenneth Roth, who ran Human Rights Watch um, for 19 years and is now a, a fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School. And he mm -hmm. explained what changed. Uh, much of it has to do with, you know, this relatively new preoccupation that university administrations have with the mental well-being of their students, with their mental health. And so if something troubling happens in the world, they feel the need to speak out and say, you know, we, we stand with you, we understand. So all of this is well-meaning, but it gets them into the business of commenting on world affairs. And that turns out to be dangerous for academic freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In other words, Daryl, it makes a kind of moral sense and seems quite natural for a school to say, we all witnessed the death of George Floyd. It's horrible. Here are mental health resources and our commitment to standing against racism. Or we all saw Russia invaded Ukraine. We stand with our Ukrainian students and for peace. But those kind of statements, Roth is saying, may put you at odds with your donors in a case like this, where they mm -hmm. want you to say one thing, and you try to strike a different balance, and suddenly they're upset. And even more than that, for Harvard to say, we're unequivocally on the side of Israel, might have a chilling effect on pro-Palestine students and vice versa. So right. his advice is just to, to do what universities used to do, which is just be silent, not say anything about anything, say, our commitment is to academic freedom and let your faculty and students do the talking. Having said all of that, moving forward, do you think this will force these elite colleges to change how they operate? That is very, very hard to predict. I think one thing that could happen, and you've seen inklings of it in Harvard's response, has been a return to that position, basically, we have professors, we have students, thousands and thousands of them from all over the world, and they may say or do things that you don't agree with. Our job is to provide them you know, a baseline of physical safety so that they can learn and teach. Claudine Gay has proven in the last few weeks to stress again and again that she does not want to lead an anti-Semitic university, that she personally condemns it and is going to you know, put university resources to work to combat that problem. But I think she has stopped short of doing exactly what donors have told her to do. As I think uh, Lila Corwin Berman said earlier, it can be almost like lethal to basically if your donors hand you a to-do list and then you just do it, that could be incredibly damaging to your reputation for integrity, yeah. uh, academic independence, and neutrality. And frankly, Harvard has, you know, $51 billion. They are in a position to say, we don't need your money. <laughs> yeah. $51 billion, you are. You good. <laughs> well, Max, this is a very complicated topic. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming through to the Common and having this discussion with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. No problem. That's WBUR education reporter Max Larkin. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Common. 
Please, if you want to get in touch with us, hit us up on Instagram at WBUR The Common or send us an email at thecommon at WBUR.org. I'm Daryl C. Murphy, and I will talk to you tomorrow.